This morning, go ahead and open up uh, back to Matthew chapter 5. This is the text that we jumped off into several weeks ago together, and I want to turn back there with you again here this morning as we turn our attention to the fourth beatitude that is in verse 6, speaking of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, I will confess to you that this past Friday, as I was completing my study for this, I had a meeting around lunchtime that ran just a little bit long. Uh, And by the time the meeting finally wrapped up, it was a good meeting, productive meeting. I was happy for it to go long. Uh, But by the time it finally wrapped up, uh, I finished the meeting and I realized, you know, I'm really really hungry. And I went into the office of the guy that I was supposed to be going to lunch with, and I apologized for running late. And I said to my friend, my coworker, I am absolutely starving. Let's go get some lunch. And he said, me too. I can't believe how hungry I am right now. And then I realized what I'd been studying earlier in the morning, and that the time was only 12.17. And I realized, you are no kind of hungry at all, actually. Uh, You know, in our world today, we actually don't fully appreciate the concept of hunger because most of us eat at least three full square meals a day, right? And the time that goes by between breakfast and lunch and then lunch and dinner uh, is really not that much time at all. And so this morning, in order to help us understand the concept of hunger, I intend to preach until 1245. (laughs) And see how you do. No, I'm just kidding. Somebody gave me a book a couple months ago called In the Kingdom of Ice. And it's a a true story of an Arctic exploration expedition that took place in the late 1800s when they believed that there was really a a very Caribbean-like atmosphere at the North Pole, that if you could simply find a way to navigate through the ice, you would find a lost world that no one had ever seen before and was completely lost to civilization. That was the reigning theory of the day. as early as the late 1800s. And so these men outfitted their ship and off they went through the Bering Straits up past Alaska thinking that if they could just find the pathway through the ice, they would have made a great scientific discovery for all mankind. Well, as the tale goes, it's a tale of survival and intrigue. They got caught in the ice pack and were stranded there for a number of years, which at first was okay because they had outfitted their ship thinking that this might happen. And so for two years, they sat there stuck in the middle of the polar ice cap, not able to go anywhere. And after a long period of time, their supplies began to dwindle down and they began to realize Uh, If there is a Caribbean-like ocean at the North Pole, we are not the ones who are going to find it. We'd better get back home. And so they began a 900-mile trek over the polar ice cap, dragging their escape boats with them the entire way so that they could then sail before winter set in through the Arctic Ocean and down to Siberia and hope to find some kind of rescue. The story really gets interesting when they actually land there on the mainland of northern Siberia, only to find that it is completely not only uncharted, but also uninhabited, and there was absolutely nothing there for them to eat at all. And that, after so many years of trial and tragedy, is where things really got hard for them. Because those men began to realize what true actual, desperate hunger looks like. 
It was gnawing, it was desperate, it was driving, and it caused them to do things that you could not imagine in order to get something to eat. And I'm not sure why they gave me the book, because it really doesn't end very well. But the takeaway that I had from that story, uh, as the few survivors from the men actually made it back to safety after years and years in the wilderness, I realized I have never even been close to being hungry, like those men were hungry. In fact, I don't even know that I can ever say that I've even, I've even missed a meal, much less experienced driving hunger. And that is the kind of hunger that is in view in this text this morning in Matthew chapter 5. It is a driving, desperate, crazy kind of hunger where I must gain something or I will die. And here Jesus instructs us that this hunger is a hallmark of the spiritual life. And so the question before us this morning is, how do I get it? And that is where we pick up Beatitudes 4, 5, and 6. And we'll see how far we get through this, uh, how far through this text we get here today. But Jesus continues on, and maybe I should back up to verse 1 and just get a running start and read this text for us as we get into it. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we have to review a little bit before we just jump down into this uh, fourth beatitude here today. These beatitudes are very, very important. There's a reason that Jesus began his great sermon with these statements. And it's because these statements really do define the course and the nature of what spiritual life, will, spiritual life will look like in the life of the believer. These nine statements that are given to us here, these nine parameters for spiritual life, you see, they're, they're not like the spiritual gifts where God gives you one of them and that's the one that he's given to you. You won't just have one. In reality, because these are really definitions of spiritual life, you will have them all. And as we saw last time we were together, they're not something that you produce. These are things that are produced in you by God and that you will crave further levels of growth in. And and these statements really do build upon each other and all must be present in the life of the believer. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that, that these are the results of God's work They are not entrance requirements that must be performed in order to get to know God, okay? These are things that God will do in you that as you submit yourself to, you will progress in, but these are not things that you must go out and do in order to know him. 
They're things that he will do in you, rather. But their order is very important, and each one of them leads directly into the next one. And as we'll see, Jesus has carefully structured these because the last time we were together, we looked at the first through the third beatitude, and we saw that those three beatitudes really do kind of give us definition clearly about the right perspective on your God. Okay, it's, it's here's who you are in light of who God is, and here's what your life should look like in relationship to who God is. And that's why he says, you must recognize the poverty and bankruptcy of your spirit, you must mourn your sinfulness, and you must then be gentle or meek in light of who you know yourself to be, in light of who God is. So those first three Beatitudes really cover a right perspective on God. Numbers 4 through 6, what we're looking at here today, gives us a right perspective now on your heart. In light of the fact that your perspective on God has now been educated and is correct, what should the response of your heart be? And that's what we're going to look at here today before in a future week we turn ourselves to a right perspective on the world around us in light of the right heart that is informed by the correct view of God. Okay, so there's a very orderly sequence to these Beatitudes as Jesus goes through them. And we've already seen that when spiritual life begins, it begins with a revolution on your perspective towards God. You recognize your poverty before Him. You begin to mourn over your bankruptcy, and there's a, a meekness that is resident within your soul because of your obvious condition before God. And what Jesus goes on today to communicate to us is that if your perspective on God is correct, then there will be some necessary and some immediate manifestations in your life. And that's what Jesus is saying to us here in verses um, 6 through 8, is that there are three necessary life manifestations that flow from a heart that has a right perspective on God. So, if your perspective on God has been redeemed, if you see Him rightly and yourself accurately, then you will do the following. You will manifest a new desire. And that's the point of verse 6. You will manifest a heart of mercy. And that's the point of verse 7. And you will also finally manifest a purity of heart as well. And that is the point of verse 8. So if your perspective on God has been informed by truth and been redeemed by His power, these are the necessary manifestations that will flow through your life. These are the things that will be happening that demonstrate spiritual life within you. So let's just take them one at a time and start with this new desire. If your perspective on God has been redeemed, you will manifest a new desire. And here's what Jesus says again to remind us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, as we approach this statement that Jesus makes, we have to ask ourselves a number of questions in working our way through this, this statement. The first one, why is this idea of a new desire, that desire that's captured in that metaphor of, of hungering and thirsting, why is that desire important? The answer really is very obvious for us, and it's because there will be zero change in your life 
until the desires of your hearts have been transformed. And the reason for that is that fundamentally every single person on this planet is driven by a certain set of desires. And, and either your desires are for sin or your desires are for righteousness. And this is why Jesus tells us you cannot serve two masters. You will serve one or the other, and, and whatever you do will reveal whatever your desire is. You see, we all do exactly, exactly what we most want to do. James 1.14 states it biblically for us by, by saying this, every single person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And lust then brings forth sin, and sin bears forth the fruit of what? Death, right? So when we sin, we're doing that because that is our desire. We're giving in to the lusts, the desires of our flesh. We all can, can fake actions, you see, but we can't actually fake desires. You can force someone to do good, I do it with my children all the time, but I can't force them to desire good. That's the difference, you see. And that's why this idea of having a hunger, a thirst for righteousness, a strong desire is so critically important because until your desires themselves have been redeemed, you can make absolutely no progress in having the right heart before God. The reason that this hunger is important is that it is an observable symptom. If all true change begins with heart change, then new desires are evidence of true change. And a lack of those desires is an evidence of a lack of true heart change. Heart change starts with a change in desire. You see, people who don't ever get hungry have a problem, right? Now, all of us would probably say that would be nice from time to time to just not be hungry, but people who don't ever get hungry are going to die, right? They're very, very sick people who don't get hungry, and they will die. And the point here is to say that, that if you have spiritual life, you will also possess spiritual hunger. The desires of your heart will manifest the reality and the condition of your heart. Does your life, therefore, today manifest a set of new desires? That is the point of origin the genesis of a life that is in line with the person of God. And you may be saying, well, you haven't really defined for me what these desires look like yet, so I don't know if I have them or not. So let's talk about that. What does this desire that Jesus is talking about here, this hunger and this thirst, what does this desire look like? Well, what is the desire of the redeemed life? What is the, the driving heart manifestation? A hunger, a thirst for what? What does Jesus say? It's a hunger and thirst for what? Aaron told me you guys were going to talk back to me today. This was your chance. It's a hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Now, the way Jesus states this here, it's stated very, very strongly. There's, there's a sense of desperation that comes with these words, hungering and thirsting for this righteousness. And, and the force here really is, is those who want it more than anything else. It is a very and exceedingly strong desire. There is, there is no more desire that is more basic to the human condition than being hungry and being thirsty, right? Psalm 42 says it very clearly this way, as the deer pants for the water, 
So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's this very strong driving sense of desire that says, I must have it or I will die. As you look at what Jesus says here, it's also worth noting that, that he states it in the present tense, which not all these Beatitudes are stated in the present tense, but this one is. And there's a reason for that. It's because it communicates to us that this hunger, this thirst, is meant to be a constant present condition. It's not like you eat breakfast once and you're done, right? You're always spiritually hungry. That is what defines the one who has been redeemed. This is not the kind of hunger between breakfast and lunch that rolls around about 10.30 and requires a cliff bar. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a dying man who must get a drink before his last breath escapes his parched, dry, cracked lips. He must necessarily grow. That's what this desires look like. You know, it was amazing to me. I haven't gone through a growth spurt in, I don't know, plus or minus 25 years or so. Uh, but my kids, on the other hand, grow all the time. And it's amazing to me what kind of food quantities they can put down when they're going through a growth spurt, right? They go through these periods where they require food pretty much around the clock. And my two-year-old will come to me and she'll say, I'm hungry. And I'm saying, we just had dinner like 15 minutes ago. Where are you putting all of this food? And spiritually here, that is exactly the condition that Jesus is saying should characterize us all the time, every day, every minute of the day, is that we are constantly, incessantly hungry for more. More what? More righteousness. More of Him and His likeness so that we might be like Him. It's a very physical word that Matthew uses here. It's a word that he uses nine times throughout the course of his gospel. And in every other place except for this one, it means that someone wants food. What does it mean to be hungry? It means that, you guessed it, they're hungry, right? And that's how Matthew uses it throughout his book. The clearest use was in the chapter just before this one in Matthew 4, verse 2, where we're told that Jesus fasts for 40 days, and then the text makes a very interesting and obvious observation. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, how do you think he felt? And then he became what? Hungry. You think? He's gone 40 days without food. That's what Matthew's saying here. That's what the word means. It's that, it's that heavy force. He's not talking about here in this text now, when he applies it to a spiritual life, an occasional whim that seeks after goodness here or there. He's talking about a pervasive sense of righteousness that infuses your life, that your desire is for this very substantive thing called righteousness that only he can produce in you. This, now, for us, what does it look like? That's the question I asked several minutes ago. Now that we know what we know about this concept, it looks like an eager, constant desire to see your disobedience replaced with obedience, to see your rebellion replaced by your submission, and to see your evil replaced by holiness. And so the question that is resident in this text for us by extension this morning is very simple. Do you have that? Because according to Jesus, that desire is the clearest manifestation 
of a heart that has been reconciled to him. You may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I don't have it, or I think I have it, but it's very weak. The next question we must ask ourselves about this idea is, well, where does this desire come from? And it's very important, and this is where the placement of the Beatitudes in God's wisdom and in Jesus' magnificent rhetoric becomes so important. He has put Beatitude number four in the place of Beatitude number four on purpose. Because the only way that you can develop a hunger and a thirst for righteousness is if Beatitudes one, two, and three are already true of you. You see, you cannot manufacture this hunger. You can't will yourself to say, I'm hungry now. Either you are or you're not. And this can only happen, this hunger can only be present as your life is hid with Christ in God. And it is therefore the logical necessity that flows out of the first three Beatitudes. Because the most basic aspect of hunger is an awareness that you don't have something. As long as you feel full and as long as you feel like you have something, you're not going to be hungry. But the moment that you realize that you're lacking substantive nutrition, that is the moment where you begin to feel hungry. And what has Jesus already instructed us to do? He has said here, you must be poor in spirit and recognize that before God you are nothing more than a bankrupt pauper. And when you recognize that, you will begin to mourn your condition And once you've recognized your bankruptcy and once you've begun to mourn your condition before him and you approach him with a heart of meekness that says, help me, then he will give to you this hunger. You see, these things all flow one after another, one after, out of the other. 2 Peter 2.2 states it this way, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The natural result of of new birth is spiritual hunger. So if you're saying, I don't don't feel hungry, I, I don't desire that righteousness, how do I get it? You must go back to square one and make sure that you're alive to begin with. Because hunger is the result of birth. And that's true even in our own world. The first desire that every human being ever has is what? To be fed, right? The first cognizant thought that goes through the mind of a brand newborn is not, I love mom and dad, aren't they great for bringing me into this world? Yeah, it's not, trust me. (laughs) The first thought that goes through their mind is not, please give me some sleep, or why is that light so bright? The first thing that they think to themselves that is a cognizant decision that they make is to recognize that they need nutrition and they need it now. And they express themselves by means of screaming their lungs out, right? What are they saying? Feed me. Do it now. And the point of all saying that is this. Hunger immediately follows life. When life happens, hunger starts. And so if you're saying, I don't feel hungry, what does that say about your life and the condition of your life before your God? See, there's a direct correlation between your desire for righteousness and your awareness of your need before God. And you cannot go and get food or desire food, righteousness, spiritually, 
until you first recognize that you're hungry. The hunger grows out of your awareness of your need before Him, and, and that's how it's connected back to the first three Beatitudes and your awareness of who God is and who you are. See, the person who has the greatest need of righteousness wants it the least because he isn't aware that he needs to eat and he ends up dead and starving. If you don't desire righteousness, that's a sign that you don't have Christ's righteousness upon you to begin with because dead men don't want food. But if you have a strong desire, that's a sign that you're growing in Christ and, and a man does not... Uh, a man does not desire that which he does not love. If you did not love Christ, you could not hunger after him. But if you're hungering after him, it means you love him. So, if you do not have this desire and you want to be hungry, go back to Beatitude 1 and ask yourself, do I actually recognize the poverty of my spirit before the greatness of who God is? Do I mourn the bankruptcy of my own soul in light of the glorious splendor of His righteousness that is so infinitely available? And do I approach Him with a spirit of gentle meekness that desires what He has and says, I can do nothing, you can do everything, give it to me now. That's where you must go. A lack of desire is evidence that you're still arrogant in your spirit, that you have not mourned your sin, and that you're not walking before God on a spirit of meekness. In short, your perspective on the nature of who God is and where you stand before Him is lacking. Because if you rightly perceived who He is, and if you rightly perceived your own lack, you would be hungry. And hunger won't come until that problem has first been fixed. That may be where you're at this morning asking that very question. There may be others of you this morning who are here saying, I do see myself rightly before God, and I do have this great spiritual hunger. How then do I feed myself? Well, that's the next question we must ask ourselves as we work our way through this question. What does the satisfaction of this desire look like, and how do I get it? You see... Those who have been redeemed, they long not only to see righteousness cultivated within themselves, but they long for an environment where righteousness is evident as well. And Jesus says, if this is your hunger, look at the promise he makes there in verse 6. He says, they shall be satisfied. That word satisfied in the Greek, it's the word kortadzo. And in, in many contexts, in fact, in most contexts, it refers to the fattening of an animal, right? We have the parallel in our world, Kobe beef, right? Where they suspend this animal from the ceiling and they feed it all day long and don't let it exercise at all. So it gets super fat and then it tastes really good when you go to eat it. That's kind of the idea here. Full. Well, it's not. Bad analogy but it kind of is, okay? It's the idea of being so full and so satiated and so satisfied that you could not ever imagine being hungry again. And Jesus is saying here, if you pursue this desire, if you pursue this righteousness, that kind of satisfaction where you're fattened up on righteousness, it will be yours. He doesn't say it could be yours. He doesn't say it might be yours. He says it shall be yours. So, 
How does that satisfaction take place if the reason for the hunger is that you can't get it on your own? Well, it's really through the filling of another. Because only God can make you righteous, and only He can empower your faithfulness to that standard. And apart from Him, this is absolutely impossible. You see, we are dependent upon Him not only to give us the desire, but also to fulfill the desire as well. It's not as though He gives us the desire and then we go out and work for the righteousness, and now that we've accumulated all of our own little righteous treasures, we're satisfied. No. He gives us the satisfaction as well. And that's what's so amazing here is that it, the, the infinite nature of God means that, that He essentially here fills us with Himself. When we desire His righteousness, not only does He give it to us through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, but He begins to fill us with it as well. And even as He pours His own righteousness, His own nature into us, thereby satisfying us, He never has less of himself or less to give us. It's a boundless, bottomless supply with which he's capable of satisfying us. Psalm 107.9 says it this way, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. And you see this, this is true satisfaction. This filling is possible as Christ imputes his own righteousness to us, clothing us in his robes of righteousness, thereby pouring infinite amounts of righteousness into our little tiny temporal cup. I remember when I was a boy, not much more than seven or eight years old, my parents took me to Niagara Falls, and after letting us climb on the railing at the top and nearly slip over to our thousand-foot death or whatever, They then took us to the bottom. I don't know why they took us to the top. They should have just stuck with the bottom. If I ever go to Niagara Falls, that's what I'm doing with my kids. I'm a safety freak. (laughs) They took me to the bottom of Niagara Falls. We got on a boat, and we sailed out there to the falls. And I remember standing out on the, the bow of the deck of the boat, getting soaked and drenched by the spray that was still so far off, and just watching all of this water pouring over like it was going to come and just swamp the boat over the top of those falls. Come to think of it, maybe the bottom was more dangerous than the top. <laughs> but the analogy in my mind as I think about this concept, it's, it's almost like taking a little tiny sippy cup out of your pantry at home to the bottom of Niagara Falls and saying, I need to be satisfied and this one little glass will do it for me today. And you go to the bottom of Niagara Falls and you say, I think that's going to do it. That ought to be our perspective on the righteousness of Christ, right? Where we have our own little, one little tiny cup, one little human being out of seven billion on this planet, out of all the thousands of years of human history, this is just me, little old me, and yet he has the full capacity, like a thousand Niagara Falls over and over again, to fill up that one little cup with his voluminous, absolute deluge of righteousness. And here's the wonderful reality of what Jesus is saying. The more satisfaction you find, the greater your desire for that satisfaction will become. You drink the one cup and you say, can I have some more? You drink that one and you say, I must have more. And the more and more and more you begin to pursue the righteousness that's found in Christ and bring your life into into alignment with His, the more you'll desire it. And that is the very essence of spiritual growth. 
And that's what Jesus was communicating even in John chapter 4. Let's turn over there because I think it's such a vivid picture where, where Jesus really expands in an object lesson upon what he says here in one very simple statement. I mean, we're, we're drawn a lot out of this one little phrase, but Jesus himself draws more out of it than we have. If you turn over to John 4, Jesus makes this point extraordinarily clearly. I mean, he's not making a hesitant assertion here. He's not saying, again, you might get some righteousness, you might get some satisfaction. It's a guaranteed reality and a promise. And, and here's, here's the perfect illustration of it over in John 4. Let's look at, well, let's start back in verse 7, I guess. So he's up in Samaria, a place where everyone in his culture said he shouldn't have been, talking to someone he shouldn't have been talking to, and he's doing it while he's by himself, and no one else has seen the fact that he's talking to this very inappropriate woman whom he should not be talking to according to the confines of his day, in a place that he should not have been at all to begin with. And he makes an offer to her. He makes a promise to her, and he, he says this, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And that right there says everything you need to know about her fitness for the offer that Jesus is about to make. And Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore, the Samaritan woman, it's ground into us again, he should not have been having this conversation. It's a Samaritan woman, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and exactly who it is who says to you now, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says, why are you talking to me? And he says, you have no idea who I am or what I'm capable of. So she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get living water? She doesn't understand what he's saying. Jesus says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, Jacob's well. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And as soon as you tap into that source, it just keeps bubbling up more and more and more and more if you will just drink it to begin with. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still doesn't get it. And then he says, Go, call your husband and come here. And now he's really getting down to brass tacks in her life personally. So far, it's been about all about cultural realities. And now he goes after her. He says, go get your husband and come here. Because in his omniscience, he knew exactly who this woman was and exactly what her source of sinfulness was. And he says, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. She lies. And Jesus said to her, yeah, you said it right. I have no husband for you've had five and the one whom you're with now is not your husband, and this you have said truly. No woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And now she begins to understand what this living water was really like. But here's our takeaway from this. An unworthy woman in an unworthy place who never should have had any offer made to her whatsoever 
is given the opportunity to drink living water that once she drinks it will continue to bubble up within her soul and cause her to want more and she will never want or lack again? Why? The same exact unworthiness is the unworthiness that every single one of us in this room have. And yet the promise is still made with equivalent force to every single one of us as it was made to that woman by Jesus, our Lord, on that day. And that is why back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst because they've tasted and are alive. Why? Because they will be, beyond a shadow of a doubt, fully satisfied. Two chapters later in John, Jesus goes at it again with people who, quote-unquote, did deserve it. And he says in John 6, 35, He says, I am the bread of life and the one who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. You see, it's an ironclad promise. All who come to him, thirsting and hungering for righteousness, he satisfies their longing desires. And so for us this morning, as we think about these principles, if if the foundation of your life is defined by the righteousness of Christ, then the structure of your life should reflect that as well. And this is Jesus' point. It is your desire for him that then motivates your investment of your time, motivates the investment of your efforts, it motivates the directions of your thoughts, your actions, and all the choices that you make. If your life has tasted, if you are alive and you've tasted of his righteousness found in Christ, you will want more. And that desire will drive you forward in every other area in your life and every other action that you take. You see, the best way to increase your hunger for Him is to feed on all things righteous. That's how you find a greater hunger for righteousness. It's through the pursuit of righteousness to begin with. Once you've been made alive, And once you taste of his righteousness, you will want more. And the more you want, the more you'll get. And the more you'll get, the more you'll want. That's what he's saying. But there's a flip side to that equation. Because the best way to lose your hunger is to gorge yourself on on worldliness. The more unrighteousness that you jam down your throat, the less you will desire that righteousness. And this is the reason why we're commanded in Scripture to pursue purity. It's the very same command that Jesus is going to give to us next. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The natural result of a hunger and thirst for righteousness is that you will now pursue purity. And the more that you feed this desire, the more and more like Christ you will become. So the admonition in this text for us this morning is to not be tempted to trade that which can fill you for that which must necessarily absolutely fade away. You will be in your life feeding desires of some kind. And in the investments that you make with your time, your attention, and your energies, what desires are you feeding? And what does that kind of eating 
say about the reality of your life or death before God? That is the question that is resident in this text before us this morning. I know that many of us may be here today. We're not going to have time to get to the next two Beatitudes, so we'll skip straight to the end and and we'll answer one final question for ourselves. You say, I want a greater desire, and yet I'm, I'm so very discouraged by the fact that I still just struggle. If that's me, how do we respond and think through what this text has just told us about the nature of spiritual life with the reality of where we are today? Well, let's turn over to Romans chapter 7. Let me just trace this through because we do have a few extra minutes if we're going to chop off the final two-thirds of this sermon and try to bring you some encouragement. If that's where you're at this morning and you're asking the question, that's great and all, but it's kind of discouraging to me because I know how I struggled this morning already, you're not alone in that sense of discouragement and frustration. The Apostle Paul felt exactly the same way, and he actually wrote about it, and God inspired it. And here's what Paul says in verse 14 of Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Sound familiar? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's very confused, clearly. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me and it is the one who wants to do good. But I, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. What's he saying? He's saying, I have a hunger, but yet trapped in my flesh as I am, I still desire to do things I should not want to do. And yet, in the inner man, I joyfully concur with the law of God. The hunger and thirst for righteousness is there, but the doing of it is still just weak. And what's his epitaph upon himself? Verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who is going to ever set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, and here's the answer, the source of all righteousness, both now and forevermore, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, for now, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And I know that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for he has set me free with new life. And the result is that Paul is now alive and he's aware of his hunger. And he desires righteousness. And every day he wakes up and he goes to war with himself to pursue that righteousness beyond all things. And when he stumbles, when he fails, and when his flesh is powerful in his life, where does he turn? What is his only and sole source of encouragement? Verse 25. 
It is Jesus Christ, his Lord, in whom there is no condemnation and in whom you can and must be set free. And you say, well, I understand that. And while that may be comforting to us, it doesn't necessarily help us hope and understand when is all this going to come to a conclusion? Well, let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll find the answer there. Paul essentially addressing exactly the same conundrum over here in 2 Corinthians 3 answers that question. When will this end? This will not end as long as you're upon this earth is essentially his answer. Your responsibility now is to fight and to desire and to kill and mortify your flesh and to pursue righteousness, knowing that the more of it you get, the more satisfied you'll be and the more of it you'll want. But then he says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, the day is coming when we all, in that day, with unveiled face, no more flesh veiling our perfect vision of our Lord, will behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Christ. And we are even now being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Why do we fight? Why do we strive? Why do we run after this kind of righteousness? Because that is the process through which we are being transformed from who we once were into the same image as the risen Lord, who is the ultimate standard of righteousness. That is why we continue to apply ourselves. That is why we hope. And so this morning, if you hear this command from Christ in Matthew 5, and it is to you a source of discouragement rather than encouragement, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes upon the one whom in the end will finally complete your transformation into the image of his righteousness and take heart, take hope, and courage as you apply yourself to the pursuit of righteousness found in Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we do thank you, not only for your word that instructs us about your work, but we thank you for that work that has made possible a pathway to righteousness. You've not only, Lord, made us alive together with him, but you have planted deep within us a desire to now be like him as well. And so as you accomplish that work in our lives, which at times can be oh so very painful, we look to you, we cling to you, we trust you, and we desire more of you. That is our hunger, that is our thirst today, and we pray that you would do as you promised in satisfying us fully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.